I've come across this thing, and it just so happens to always be from um, people of privilege. But it's always come back to me of like, man, you're lucky to be doing comedy, or like, you're lucky to have a voice, or you're lucky to have gotten where you're at because you're a gay black woman. I'm just a white guy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Radio DePaul podcast. As always, I'm Sarah Breedlove, here with episode 64, Stand Up. This week, we have two wonderful stories about resistance, perseverance, and about how you can make a difference within whatever community you happen to be a part of. First up, I want to introduce a story about rekindling a fire within a community that seemed so forthright around this time last year. I'll let Emily McTavish take it away. James Franco and Aziz Ansari have been the latest in Hollywood to have been accused of sexual harassment. Larry Nasser, the former U.S. Olympics gymnastics team doctor, has been on trial for decades of sexual abuse to young women. The government was shut down for 69 hours earlier this year. And as of today, the status of many so-called dreamers is still undetermined. All of these big news stories may seem totally random. However, these issues like sexual harassment, immigration, and a lack of faith in institutions were all represented in one day. And you may know it famously from last year, the Women's March. On Saturday, January 20th, Chicago women and men rallied at Grant Park for the second Women's March, now one year since President Donald Trump was inaugurated. And it's 2018, and we're facing the same issues that many had thought faded into the background. And of, no, do a better color. Do like this one. Before the march, I met up with DePaul Law students who were making posters to take with them. Their meetup was sponsored by the DePaul student chapter of If, When, How, which supports reproductive rights. Throughout my time with them, though, they kept saying, I hope we don't have to be here next year. I went last year because I felt like specifically everything Trump was saying about women in general, women, individual women, I thought was, like, disgusting. So I felt like when they got the march together, I thought it was really important to make it like known, you know, because I feel like there are a lot of people who believe in gender equality, but to me, it's really important to kind of make it clear that, you know, we weren't okay with what he was saying and that we are kind of a force to be reckoned with. That was Emily Miller, a second year law student and board member of If, When, How. And I feel like this year, it's equally as important to make sure that society knows and Trump knows that like we're not going away and like you can keep making your comments and keep doing your crazy things but like we're watching and we're not gonna just kind of take it lying down I guess Mm -hmm. in my opinion. I mean I think this year too like 2017 there were a lot of big changes not Mm -hmm. big changes but there were a lot of people who were elected to office because of the protests they made. And that's Abby Flores, another second-year DePaul law student who attended last year's march. And I think that's right. a difference we could make. Like, you have, you realize that you have a voice. Definitely. So this year is almost more important because it's telling those people who do want to run, who do want to have a voice, that they can't have a voice, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
And I feel like last year it was so, like, general comments, like, you know, attacks on women's health care. And now I think we were kind of saying earlier, like, you, you think we're almost done. Yeah. And then this year so much more came out that it was like, at first it was like, you know, I've heard from people, oh, you know, women make up a wage gap that's not real. Or, you know, oh, why are they so upset? Like, they have their rights. And I feel like just seeing, like, the abuse, like, sexual assault in Hollywood and other industries, like, it's so clear how f- there's so much farther to go than even, like, it's not just about the comments, it's, like, systematic, like, oppression of women and just gender equality has not been reached at all yet. So this year we have a really specific focus, and that is March to the Polls. That was Liz Radford, one of the co-organizers of the March and a board member of Women's March Chicago. And I spoke with her a couple days before the event. Um, Although the political system isn't perfect, it's still a tool that needs to be used. And we feel like that's where the focus should be in 2018, because the governor's election is on the table, midterms, local elections. So we feel like it's a really good use of energy and good focus. I think it's more inclusive. I think, in my mind, I did see the problems that people were, were, like, voicing last year, that it wasn't necessarily the well, the most well-thought-out way to go about it, um, because I do have friends who are allies, and I do have friends who are fighting for rights that are just as important as women's rights, and who do not, have not realized those rights yet. And I think it's a good way to put it on. And I mean, it's the same. We're still fighting for the same rights, mm-hmm. so might as, a different name is not going to make me feel any less validated, you know. Right. And I think the bottom line is that you need to vote for the people you think are going to, um, you know, fight for the like what we find important. So it's like protesting is good, but you need to vote for the people so they can come into office, so they can make the changes that we want to be seeing, and just you know that's like kind of the first step to making changes, getting the right people in positions of power and not the wrong people in positions of power. This issue of empowerment is very important to Sarah Hollenbeck, co-owner of Women and Children First Bookstore up in Andersonville. Sarah, along with her business partner and co-owner of the store, Lynn Mooney, have been working to include more than just feminist texts at their place. They strive to feature LGBTQ authors, minority authors, and authors of just other underrepresented groups in the publishing world. Um, so yeah, last year, um, I was one of those very stereotypical people, <laughs> white women, who was very shocked by the results of uh, last year's election, presidential election, to my own embarrassment now. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I helped, uh, co- I post, you know, the bookstore co-sponsored last year's Women's March, and then we were a site for a meetup um, that morning of the march um i got here at like 7 a.m and i had you know a jug of coffee and some donuts and poster material i was expecting about 25 people we had 100 people show up no way there was a television crew it was wild um the store was packed and it was just overrun with um People of all ages, all genders, um, all races, it was really one of my uh, favorite moments in the bookstore. 
do you think with last year, um, you know, immediately after the election, it seemed very energized and mm-hmm. leading into January, leading into last year's March. And then from my perspective, it just seemed to kind of, I wouldn't say fade, but mm-hmm. kind of go into the background a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with this Me Too movement mm-hmm. and now Time's Up, do you think that's also spurred a re-energizing? Yeah, I do. I feel I felt the same way. Um, there's a lot of fatigue within the um, community in terms of activist events. Mm-hmm. We host we hosted an activism series all last year, mm-hmm. which means that once a month we brought in a social justice organization who talked about what they do and what people can do to get involved and support their work. The first um, meeting of that group, it was so packed in here in this bookstore you couldn't move. Hey. Um, but I mean, and the windows were all fogged up. It was like <laughs> so packed. Then most, the last one we had, I think, was in October. Mm-hmm. And there was maybe 12 people, 20 people mm-hmm. here. And so you just like saw like this very um, obvious decline mm-hmm. in. Not, people are just as like upset and angry, but they're just so tired. Obviously, the Women's March encompasses women's issues. On the other hand, too often women's movements are disregarded by men who say, where is my voice? What do you think specifically is the man's role? Do you think it's to listen or to take action, to make change? What do you think? Initially, I think it's to listen because you have to understand what's going on and you have to understand the woman's perspective on it. Uh, we're not in the same situation as women, as males, because I guess part of that would be male has have always been dominant, whether that be physically or in like a hierarchy. Males have been looked upon higher, and so people need to take a step back and realize that that's changed. Matt Horgan is a DePaul graduate student, and he works in college athletics. And he'll also tell you how he has three sisters and a mom whom he'd never want to see be discriminated against based on gender. You know, everyone's equal. A woman could do just as much as a man could and vice versa. So really, it was just a matter of time before the movement did push forward and it just took a few bigger voices to also express their opinion. When it comes to the Me Too movement, it obviously just backs it up. The more people that are coming out with that, whether it be professional athletes or with the whole gymnastics case, obviously, it's just going to continue to move forward and you're going to get males supporting it, which you have seen already. And so obviously the movement's going to continue moving on and it's, you know, it's not going to be stopped at this point. It's only going to keep carrying on. I think we had a really steep learning curve last year because this was the first time many of us had done this. It was definitely the first time any of us had done this on this scale. We're really grateful for our groups we work with. Um, we last year and this year we reached out to into the community mostly because there are a lot of established activists out there already who've been working for years and years and um, it just makes complete sense to us to we're kind of the new kids on the block to say hey can we all work together and you know we really value their experience and what they're doing and um, 
an addition that does lend a lot of support to the march for those who are excited about it because they reach out to their groups, they do some outreach, um, they provide leadership ideas, um, in some cases speakers. So it, it's, um, it's great for the whole community to come together around a big event like this. The next task for the Women's March Chicago group is to keep the momentum going through the primaries and through the midterm elections. And it's, it's a bit of a, it's not a sprint, it's a bit of a marathon <laughs> to get to November. And we definitely will do all we can to keep to get people engaged and keep people engaged um, in, in all sorts of ways to get out the vote. So this leads into my takeaway. These issues of sexism, racism, harassment, xenophobia will continue to be problems unless we take action. And there will continue to be marches and protests. But one way we can make a difference is to vote. So register to vote, cast your ballot, and be involved. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on, just go vote. And also, have some respect for one another. That was Emily McTavish, a graduate student and producer for the Radio DePaul podcast. Next up, a story about the pursuit of laughter and how systemic oppression can get in the way of people's ability to do so. Here's Amy Doe with more. The lack of representation in comedy continues to be a problem. It's a multifaceted issue that is difficult to pin down. Today, we have four members from different parts of the local comedy community to discuss this difficult topic. There's always going to be a lack of representation, but I think that comedy is changing. Joe D'Amico, producer of the Radio DePaul comedy podcast, Mistaken Eggs. I think representation is so important because if if you have a writer's room of all white people or if you're only listening to this narrow perspective of life, that, that is all you think is funny, but like... You know, I'm not going to get a lot of those references, or a couple of those references, and I'm going to be excluded from the laughs. Jerwin Gabriel Santiago, a student and member of DePaul Improv and Sketch Comedy. On a representation level, I feel like it's important for people to see marginalized groups, and like people from marginalized backgrounds or, or whatever. It's important to know that we aren't what most you know, media will portray us as. Allison Reese, comedian and founder of Matt Damon Improv, an all-women of color troupe which currently has a main stage run at the Annoyance Theater. I feel like all the major comedy institutions now kind of have that on their radar, and I feel like that's a much bigger thing. And we're all trying and learning um, different ways on how to make that happen more. And Jennifer Estlin, executive producer and co-owner of the Annoyance Theater. The challenge in talking about representation, especially in comedy, is that it's an individual experience. Everybody is looking for someone to relate to, and relatability is subjective. I think it was Aladdin. Genie was super funny. Genie was like over the top. And just, like, hilarious. And I was like, oh, this guy is doing some crazy stuff. And then I found out later, like, that's, like, Robin Williams. However, from a racial perspective, the discrepancies are clear. I've not seen myself represented almost anywhere. And it was, it's really tiresome to just not ever feel like you see yourself. The lack of female voices in comedy is also very apparent. For a really long time... 
uh, at least when I was starting in improv comedy, um, most of the improv comedians were white men. It used to be in the Second City touring companies and stuff that were there were always four men and two women. It was just the way it was. And the same thing on the stages usually reflected the same thing. And uh, Mick, my partner, was the first director at Second City to insist on an even cast, three men and three women. Um, and pretty much since then, that's been the case there. Very rarely it's tipped one way or the other, but when it was really like someone just had to do it, and then it was like, oh, why aren't we doing this? I don't see, when I go to open mics, I still see, you know, 15 straight white men and then one girl, maybe a few minorities. But when I'm, you know, going to a big event, maybe at the Laugh Factory, which is the third largest comedy-only theater in the world, or if I'm going to Zany's, or if I'm going to the big-time comedy places, I see a range of people from all different backgrounds, uh, ethnicity, color, background, gender, sexual orientation. I see You see it all. Uh, and I think that Chicago is a very good melting pot of diversity in comedy. One of my biggest aha moments mm -hmm. was I went through a program and did very well in that program, but then I, I wasn't one of the people who made like the little like after program teams or groups or whatever. But the reasoning behind it was I was told that I was not a team player, you know, that I had a bad attitude and all of these like incredibly not true things about me that were just like, you're just saying that because I'm a brown woman. And that's like what people sub will subconsciously just go to. So that's probably one of the first times in comedy where I was like, oh, what? <laughs> like, why, why you gotta be like that? <laughs> but why is representation in comedy so important? What gives the spotlight so much power when it comes to making people laugh? I think women in comedy have an incredibly powerful voice. It may be that they're not even talking about being a woman, but because they are a woman, it brings that out into the world. And I, and I think that, you know, the ability to make someone laugh about something is so incredibly um, powerful because it's disarming. Making someone laugh is powerful because it is disarming. Comedy is more than just making people chuckle. Humor has been the vessel of social dialogue ever since ancient Greece. It's a safe space where people can toe the line between vulgar and insensitive. A political demilitarized zone where people are free to speak their mind and introduce new ideas. Laughs are knee-jerk reactions to things. I, I don't know, I, I think I sit much more in a, in a place where I like thinking about things that are funny that they exist. Like if I was like, dude, someone called me this, let's talk about that, and it's not funny when we're talking about it, but then when you start thinking about it more and you start thinking about it that more and you're like reflecting on stuff, then it gets funny. And comedy isn't about like the big hearty guffaws. I think it's, uh, it's we're looking at something and it's like, oh my gosh, it's really funny because it's happening right now, it's truthful and it's real. But being in the spotlight feels vulnerable and isolating. It takes a lot to hold your own in that space, and it says a lot about the power structures in society when we look at who is able to take to the stage. And if people in power are not encouraging and enabling this diversity, they are part of the problem.
knowing how honestly diverse the comedy community is, I just want to always have the best comics. And I think that if I'm working or if I'm interviewing someone for a podcast or if for an animation series that I've just been signed on to, if I'm getting voice actors, other comics, if I'm getting help writing for my web series, depending, whatever it may be, I want the funniest people around me. I want the most talented and hardworking people around me. And I think that as long as you're exclusive to that, then the diversity will help itself. There's so many systemic evils at play that make it damn near impossible to succeed in this environment for people of color, for women, for queer people. And I think these institutions need to take a deep, hard look at themselves and ask exactly who it is that they are helping. Within the comedy community, you are, as a person of color or a queer person, you're very much cornered into just speaking on that. That's a big part of my life for sure, but that's not all of what makes me me. I can effortlessly get a, a ton of white male improvisers in the door and almost as many fem white female improvisers, and it's still some work to get diversity. There are fewer um, people of color uh, in general that are going to be able to take on a career that's, or, or the time to do a career that is uh, based in comedy and it, when it's already so hard for people of color, women, etc. to get jobs. Oh yeah, uh, if you're straight and you're white and you got a little ding-a-ling between your legs, you have an advantage and it's... It sucks that it still exists, but you have an advantage. You know what? You should really take a deep, hard look at what that means for me in my life. Uh, that means that crossing the street is difficult sometimes because people won't move, cars won't stop. That means that being affectionate with my partner can sometimes be dangerous. That means that I don't make as much as even white women, you know? We're always saying 70 cents to the dollar where it's like, what about the 54 cents for Latino women? What, like, people gotta recognize that this, me being vocal about diversity is not me being vocal for just me. It's me being vocal for a wide array of people because like your baseline is mediocrity. I have to work four or five times as hard and I know there are people who aren't as privileged as me working harder just to get to that baseline of respect. Fortunately, society as a whole has become more conscious of the need for different voices to be heard. However, the emergence of minorities onto the comedic scene is relatively recent and has yet to trickle down in any meaningful way. Change and bettering this challenging problem means different things for different people. I would really like to see diversity become more than a poster, more than a selling point to these institutions. What I'd love to see is more um, diversity that is happening because it's just there, as opposed to because of outreach or because of um, specific efforts. Um, me personally, I want to be a person that I needed when I was a kid. Until the people in power acknowledge that they have privilege and begin to hire comedians in minority groups, 
this system will go unchanged. But the good thing is, there are many grassroots attempts to actively seek out different types of funny and lift them up to the spotlight. Virgin Daiquiri, IO's all-woman herald team. Alison Reese's Matt Damon improv. The voices are there, and I encourage you to seek them out. At least, until the day comes when we won't have to look anymore. That was Amy Doe, a producer for the Radio to Paul podcast. This episode was written and produced by Amy Doe, Emily McTavish, and myself, Sarah Breedlove. We'd like to extend a huge thank you to Emily Miller, Abby Flores, Liz Radford, Sarah Hollenbeck, Matt Horgan, Allison Reese, Jerwin Gabriel Santiago, Jennifer Elston, and finally, our very own Joe D'Amico. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to leave us a review on SoundCloud and iTunes. It really helps us out. However, if you still crave more content and you're hungry for comedy, be sure to tune in to Radio DePaul's comedy podcast, Mistake and Eggs, where humor is served sunny side up. You can find that on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and the Radio DePaul app. Once again, I'm Sarah Breedlove, and thank you for listening to the Radio DePaul podcast. <laughs>